0: Dot com
1: slash commercials.
0: The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
2: As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way.
1: Pentecostal power, Pentecostal power. Lord, as of old at Pentecost, thou didst thy power display with cleansing, purifying flame, descend on us today. Lord, send the old time power, the Pentecostal power, thy floodgates of blessing on us, throw open wide. Lord, send the old time power, the Pentecostal power, that sinners be converted and thy name glorified. For mighty works, for thee prepare and strengthen every heart. Come, take possession of thine own and never more depart. All self consume, all sin destroy with earnest zeal and due, each waiting heart to work for thee, O Lord, our faith renew. Speak, Lord, before thy throne we wait, thy promise we believe, and will not let thee go until the blessing we receive. Lord, send the old-time power, the Pentecostal power, thy floodgates of blessing on us throw open wide, Lord, send the old-time power, the Pentecostal power, that sinners be converted, and thy name glorified. This is a hymn by Charles H. Gabriel called Pentecostal Power, published in 1912, now in the public domain. I share this because it so perfectly shows what we've been talking about this week, of this general movement and direction and motivation of the church in the early 1900s as there was truly revival being poured out and this was a hymn that you may have gone to your assembly on sunday and you would have sung this hymn and it would have been in earnest because you would have seen the revivals happening all around the country the world And you would have been praying, Lord, send us that power. And what is the power for? We see again, the flame, the purification, that part of the power is God's power to cleanse us completely from all self, from all sin, and endue us with an earnest zeal. That's what we see happen to the disciples after the day of Pentecost. They were utterly changed from cowards who forsook Jesus and left him to die and suffer alone to men and women who would stand against even the greatest Roman government officials without flinching. Now, how did that happen? That happened by that purifying power on Pentecost. But there's also the power... For sinners to be converted to Jesus. And the power for God's name to be glorified as his kingdom truly does come on the earth as it is in heaven. Jesus told us to pray that because he was sincere. Now we can see when we compare this to what many of us have experienced on a Sunday morning. We go in and we sing a few hymns about how much god loves us or we focus a lot on salvation we focus a lot on the cross there's not too much about revival if anything and then the sermon i feel like i've heard the same sermon 50 times from 50 different pastors it always starts out they read you know maybe john 15 and then they talk about how whatever circumstance you're facing in your life god is there to go through with you And while that is true, that's not really the main focus. That's sort of like, if your heart is set on seeking the kingdom, then yes, God will be there for you. But it's not like that's the be-all and end-all of the Christian walk. And so we see an utter decline in our churches. I speak to Christians I just happened to meet, and I tell them we're praying for revival. And they say, what's revival? Revival. They've never even heard the word before. Now how can we expect a revival if your average Christian isn't even being taught about it? So, welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. We are Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. We're very excited you've joined us today. Welcome, Ray.
3: Thank you. The issue is very clear before us today. How is the worldwide revival going to begin again or has it already begun and we in america just don't know about it it's certainly happening in china it's certainly happening in vietnam we now are hearing reports that in iran it's happening it's happening in argentina oh there's already a worldwide revival beginning to move but it's not in america we're still dead here We want to talk about why and what it's going to take to turn that.
1: Yes. So briefly, I just wanted to share before we get into the the main points of the broadcast today. So this question of tongues, have you ever asked yourself, why did God give the gift of tongues? Of all the gifts God could have given us, why did he choose to give us the gift of tongues? Well, we find the answer beginning actually back in Genesis. So I'll read from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shiner, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar and they said go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth and the lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded and the lord said behold the people is one and they have all one language and this they begin to do And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So we see, first of all, the reason why we even speak different languages in the first place is because shortly after the flood, when we all did speak one language, we conspired together to sin and do evil. And so the Lord, to slow down and restrain us from the great amounts of evil we might do, scattered our languages. And that has continued to this present day. Now, what we see in the book of Acts, I'll read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, that is the disciples, were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven, Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. That's 15 languages that they heard. They heard these Galileans speaking in, as they said, in our tongues, the wonderful work of God. Now what we see here is God originally divided the languages because of sin. And in the New Covenant, with Jesus coming, sin is destroyed. Jesus came to destroy sin so that he would not have to destroy sinners, but he came to destroy sin itself. So as sin is destroyed, there's no longer a reason for us to be divided by language, but we can be brought into unity. Now, this is also a sign that God has not just called the Jews, but he has called all nations. You'll recall the same language is used in the Genesis passage and in the Acts passage. In Genesis, it said that God scattered them across the face of the earth, under the heavens. And in Acts, it says that, the men, the Jews who were visiting, were out of every nation under heaven. So there was this scattering that happened, and now all those who were scattered are now coming back into unity. And so this goes back to what we've been sharing, that Jesus did not come merely to save individual souls, but he came to restore everything that was lost in the fall. And part of that restoration is this unity of the human race. God did not intend us to be unable (laughs) to speak with each other. He intended us all to be able to come together, and what were they doing? They were hearing the wonderful works of God in their own languages. So he's bringing together in Christ all of us from all across the world to praise and glorify him together. Thank you, Jesus. So very quickly, the reason why tongues is a sign and why God is bringing the gift of tongues, is part of the restoration of the fall for Jesus to fully restore everything that was lost due to sin. And so this is why it's so significant that when the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been poured out, it has always been in a known language that is separate from what we might call the personal prayer language described in Corinthians. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is fulfilling and redeeming what was lost with the languages.
3: Thank you. Now, we want to go directly uh, for the broadcast today to wrap up this question of Charles Durham and the impact that he had on the Azusa Street revival. But let me preface it by saying... I've been in great sadness and even tears this morning as I have reviewed once more the autobiography or the biography of William Seymour and seen the absolute destruction that was wrought in Isuzu by men and women who came with their own agendas. As I've said before, William Seymour is a hero of my heart he wanted the races to come together in jesus christ and be one there was no racial divide in his heart he had every reason to be bitter but he chose the high road and men and women came into that azuzu street and took advantage of his humility and his kindness And they ravaged the people, repeatedly trying to draw off Azusa Street into their own sphere of influence so they could be somebody. And the one that caused probably the most damage of all, not just at Azusa Street, was William Durham. He caused the most havoc for today. And we are still suffering in the Christian church today because of this man, Durham. Charles Parham was on the other side. He caused some damage, but it was Durham who caused absolute destruction, theological destruction. So I'm going to again share with you from the little book, Rejected Blessings, by a dear friend, Pastor Jim Kerwin, missionary, a man who lives by faith and walks clean without sin in his life. Let me share with you why Durham won. If the losers in this grand theological dispute had written Durham's epitaph, it might have sounded like the words of Charles Parham, but one would hope that someone would have been More gracious. This is what Parham wrote. The diabolical end and purpose of his satanic majesty in in perpetrating durism on the world, in repudiating sanctification as a definite work of grace, has now clearly been revealed. By seeking to destroy the grace of sanctification, He is seeking to efface the only grace of God to make us overcomers and thereby hinder necessary preparation for redemption. Let all who have been deceived thereby humble themselves and seek restoration to this grace wherein we stand, Romans 5.2, as you cannot receive the real Pentecost on an unsanctified life. Amen. But in theology, as in war, the losers don't get the last word, and they certainly don't write the histories. The winners, Durham's spiritual heirs, the Assemblies of God and the Foursquare Church and others, all continue to pay tribute to Durham as the spiritual and theological innovator and father of their belief system regarding sanctification. Once they clearly won the field of battle, they became more magnanimous toward their second-blessing brethren. And the issue now seems to garner little interest, except perhaps among historians. For the majority of Pentecostals, the three-step process is dead, replaced by Durham's two-step approach. Why did Durham and his followers who are in the vast majority today, prevail. Pastor Jim gives three reasons. One, Durham had a powerful persona and a persuasive public ministry. All first-hand accounts indicate as much. His meetings were exciting. His preaching was electric. People sensed the presence of God Seekers received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and people were healed. The feeling was, if this teaching isn't correct, why is God blessing this ministry? And it was a fair question to ask, but it also doesn't take into account. Parham's prayer to Jesus. If this man's teaching is not right, take his life. If my teaching is not correct, take my life, but let it be plain. And a very short time later, at the age of 39, William Durham is dead. Pneumonia. Number two on why they prevailed. As Pentecost spread, it encompassed many more people from non-holiness backgrounds than it did of those of the Wesleyan tradition. As Assemblies of God Bible scholar and historian William H. Menez points out, A problem began to manifest itself in the ranks of the early Pentecostal movement when large numbers of people began to enter the movement from groups who knew neither the Wesleyan nor the Keswickian type of holiness doctrine. Most of these seem to have come from the Baptist the Baptist generally held to a Reformed view of sanctification in which the great emphasis was upon process, not crisis. Now, you may recall that prior to his earlier initial acceptance of a second work of grace, Wesleyan Holiness Durham, he too had been a Baptist, and the spirit-baptized Baptist had no knowledge of a need to figure out how to accommodate second-blessing sanctification into their theological framework, so they had no problem giving Durham a theological thumbs-up. The Holy Spirit seemed to see no impediment to their ignorance of the doctrine. He baptized them and gave them the gift of tongues anyway. And three, Durham was partially correct. Everything pertaining to salvation is part of Christ's finished work. The Pentecostals from holiness backgrounds couldn't, from Scripture, support the caricature of the Wesleyan position that had evolved among its shriller proponents. I won't go into what that is, but they way overstated their case. And because of that, it opened the door to renounce the doctrine. Concerning experiences, Durham says, we would say that we do not doubt that many people come into conscious possession of the experience of sanctification after conversion, but because they are not taught the truth in the first place, shall we teach all others that they must seek sanctification as a second work. Now, don't get lost. Stay with me, and you're going to see in just a moment why these are such absolutely vital issues today he continues as stated above some do not know at first enough of the truth to get the joy that they would receive did they possess a knowledge of the truth therefore with new light on what they have in christ comes new blessings so durham never says that subsequent sanctification experiences aren't valid but he insists that it needed to be experienced that way. That is, that delayed experience can't be doctrinalized. If he used terminology a bit more familiar to us, he would say that these believers merely appropriated what was already theirs in Christ. Now, strange to say, Durham's spiritual heirs don't pay him don't agree with him and don't believe the key element of his sanctification doctrine, and that is eradication. Durham insists, Manis, rejected that Wesleyan concept of eradication as unscriptural. But the time by the time Mary Meyer Perlman, that very able assemblies of God theologian of a guy of a bygone generation, wrote his classic theology. He, as a spiritual heir of Durham, felt he could list eradication of inbred sin under erroneous views of sanctification. And yet, William Durham claimed quite the opposite. I'm indebted to Farkas for pointing this out. The finished work doctrine was not faithfully transmitted after Durham's death. Farkas maintains that on one level, Wesleyan holiness can be broken down to two elements. Sanctification event happens at some point in time after regeneration. Subsequence. In other words, at some point after a person is born again, they will be entirely sanctified. Durham totally rejected that. But, Farkas argues, that Durham's Anger was directed only at subsequence and not eradication or the deliverance from inbred sin. We've already heard Durham thunder against subsequence claiming that sanctification happens at the instant of regeneration, all at once, with forgiveness, new new birth, and justification. But listen to Durham himself on the question of eradication this is the freedom from indwelling sin. And I quote Durham Has a man who is in Christ any sin in him? No, it could not be. We do not come into Christ with the quote, old man unquote, in us. When a man is converted, he is made pure and holy, and he has really a holy love in his heart for God and man. We believe that God's standard is entire sanctification, and that this being the case, no man can be justified in experience short of it. The old man is full of sin, and the new man is free from sin. Referring to Romans 6.6, Durham said, In other words, our old man, that nature from Adam, was crucified with Christ that it might be destroyed or done away with.
1: So essentially what happened is that the Azusa Street people, William Seymour, the, the traditional Wesleyan Methodists, they taught that first you were born again, and when you were born again your sins were forgiven. You were made new, your soul came alive from the dead. And secondly...
3: And you didn't walk in known you, sin. You did
1: not continue to sin. And secondly, entire sanctification sometime after that initial experience, perhaps even within a few hours. That second experience was distinct, though. And that was the removal of what they would call inbred sin or what the scripture calls the old man. Now, Durham said, no, that all happens at conversion. And so what ended up happening is new believers are taught Oh, you were entirely sanctified at conversion so it's not something that you need to seek you already have it and then his followers took it one step further and actually just outright denied entire sanctification and they said no the old man is always going to be in you you'll always be struggling with sin until the day that you die and then when you die it'll be removed from you So you see, it was only two steps away that we end up with this dramatically different doctrine that opens the door to all kind of sin and evil.
3: So what happened? Those who adopted Durham's teaching did not adopt this key element of eradication. Probably the short answer is that Durham died while the controversy was still hot He was cut short before he could define his doctrine more fully. Durham's followers, many with Baptist backgrounds, were taken up with the crusade against subsequence and lacking the previous exposure to Wesleyan holiness that Durham had in his background, they misapplied the same zeal to eradication. To put it in the vernacular, Durham wished to throw out what he considered to be the bathwater of subsequence, but he very much loved the baby of eradication, his followers far less clear on the distinction because of their Baptist background threw out the baby with the bathwater. Farco seemed to favor the idea that Durham's designated successor, Frank Ewat, may lie at the heart of reinterpreting Durham's theology. Now, let's stop reading the book and let's go to the real issue. And the real issue is here today. It faces us now. And the persecution for us has been very severe over this issue. This is not a dead issue. This is very much alive and it is going to become the central focus in the Christian church at the end of time. That is, can you see the Lord without holiness? And the scriptures are very clear about this. Let me read it for you. It's found in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which... No man shall see the Lord. Now you note there are two pieces that the writer of Hebrews says must be in place. One, it must be peace. And two, it must be holiness. Now holiness is different from righteousness. Righteousness is no longer committing acts of sin it's being innocent before God but that leads into holiness which is utter total consecration belonging to Jesus Christ
1: and receiving a pure heart by faith so that no longer do you find yourself tempted with bouts of anger or irritation things like that
3: now The doctrine has been so cheapened today and people become and pastors and bishops become very angry about this what do they become angry about they become angry that we would dare say that they should go on to complete sanctification entire sanctification and that they should walk clean before god and the old man should be removed and they should not be walking in sin today.
1: But in fact, they don't deny merely entire sanctification, they deny righteousness itself. And they say, well, God views us as righteous. When God looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. And so they've not only robbed you of sanctification, they've robbed you of righteousness. They've robbed you of conversion.
3: They have literally stolen your conversion. If you're walking in sin today, if you're walking in rebellion against Jesus today, you have had Jesus stolen from you. And this causes great consternation for us because revival has never come to a people that was not holy. It is the baseline for revival to take place. No, we see churches that have revival prayer rooms, and in fact, they'll even have it scheduled so that every hour of the day is covered, and somebody is in that room praying for revival. But no revival comes.
1: I've seen other churches where they, the church does, the whole church does, meet on a weeknight to pray for revival, and yet they cling to doctrines that will block revival. Um, For example, one such church I went to was a Oneness Pentecostal church, and they really clung to this doctrine that unless you were baptized in water in the name of Jesus, you could not be saved. Now that seems like such an insignificant issue, but if you cling to something like that, how can the Holy Spirit come in revival? it's beyond simple ignorance there's deliberate choices you have to make to cling to that belief likewise I visited another church that was allegedly praying for revival though not very earnestly they cancelled their prayer meeting for the summer so people could spend more time with their families Uh, but that particular church clung to some rather legalistic strains of things such as how long women's dresses needed to be and they you know they would say things like women can't be called to missions at all unless they're married and their husband is called to missions and so there was this very strong coercive forceful imposition of spiritual authority from the leadership onto the congregation Now, how can you pray for revival in sincerity and yet continue to beat down your church members like that?
3: It's called shepherding, where you don't buy a car without going to the pastor and getting his approval. You don't get married to someone without going to the pastor and getting approval. The pastor has the ultimate word of authority in your life. Well, that's not Jesus. Now, Part of what I've seen as I've gone back and read carefully the story of Isuzu Street from beginning to end, William Seymour was finally squeezed out. And after several attempts to bring together and bring unity once more in this scattered and broken and growing movement called Pentecostalism, every attempt failed.
1: He eventually died of a heart attack uh, at the age of about 52, I suspect of a broken heart.
3: And the same thing happened with his wife. She continued for another eight years leading the church. And then the same thing happened to her with a man coming in, ingratiating himself into the congregation, becoming a part of the fabric of the church, and then trying to usurp the church and take it over. It ended up in a court battle and fortunately uh, he lost.
1: But by that point, the fellowship was so small, they had gone into so much debt to fight the court battle that they, and then their building was condemned for fire safety hazard and they ended up just closing.
3: And shortly thereafter she died now I look at all of this and I want to tell you what troubles me the most that is God begins to move in a place there's conviction there's repentance but as they continue to attend that place If the Holy Spirit does not move in great power, and if they don't begin to reach out to save the lost, they'll become ingrown and dead. And then someone will attack, ingratiate themselves into the congregation, and they'll destroy the church. I've seen that happen time after time.
1: But what we see in revival as well is that there doesn't even need to be this inward turning, but... Men can see the great success that the ministry is having. They can see that God is healing, God is saving, God is pouring out a spirit. And instead of praising God and being grateful for the success of their brother or sister who's leading this ministry, they want to take it. And so they try to come in and persuade the congregation to follow them with a new teaching and... It ends up splintering the church. It breaks it up.
3: At the very heart of this, and this is why I've said over and over that William Seymour is my hero, because he was so humble of heart, he would not fight back. He made mistakes in allowing some of these people to come in and ravage the church and ravage the movement. But I see so clearly that if we're going to move forward in revival in America, we're going to have to humble our hearts before God. We're going to have to give up our personal agendas.
1: And it means really putting the work of Christ first, whether that means that anybody knows who I am or not. That doesn't mean letting people come in and destroy the work but it means that I don't become somebody who's destroying the work.
3: And the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about this in 1st Corinthians, the second chapter. When I came to you, not with excellency of speech or with wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ And him crucified. If revival does not bring us. To our face. On the ground. Before Jesus. If it does not bring us. Complete devotion of heart. And humbling of spirit. Before Jesus. It's a false revival. It's not the real deal.
1: William Seymour also said that if the Pentecost baptism that you received did not increase your love for God and for others, then it was not the Pentecost baptism.
3: And let's be clear, you cannot trust in religious experiences. You can't trust in shaking, being slain in the spirit or tongue speaking if you don't have holiness, There has to be a total, complete giving over of your life to Jesus. Revival will not come in your church if both your pastor and yourself and others have not humbled yourselves before God and sought His face and turned from your wicked ways. And specific wicked ways... Trying to be somebody, trying to lift myself up, trying to establish my authority, judging others, criticizing others, feeling superior, drawing class lines, drawing bloodlines, discounting a black or white brother or sister being prejudiced racially or gender-wise men pushing their ascendancy over women instead of humbly serving in whatever way and whatever gifts god has granted to us so you know as i've as i've gone through this week's study what i'm taking away from it Is that the power of God is going to come again. And when it comes this time. I pray we can be humble of heart. And in no way try to become somebody. Because the presence of God is there. That we would humble our hearts before almighty God. And before each other. Preferring one another above ourselves not being jealous of my church or my people not drawing sectarian lines well I'm a Baptist I'm a Presbyterian I'm a assemblies of God I'm this I'm no in Jesus Christ there are no denominations there are no gender lines there are no racial lines we are either one in Jesus Christ or we are not in Jesus Christ. Those those things are all of the power of darkness. Jesus said he came to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are powerful today in the church. And theology has been established that will prevent revival from coming to America and from your church. And from your life. If you believe. That you are slowly growing in sanctification. And you will spend your whole life doing that. And that at the end you still will be walking in sin. You have bought into durism. You are not following the word of God. You have been deceived and tricked. As many pastors today have been. We must turn from this wickedness and we must repent. Anything you'd like to say, Alexandra, as we close this week on William Seymour and Azusa Street?
1: Yes, I would just like to say that we do believe that God will resume this work of worldwide revival. And what I hope you're hearing is that God has not abandoned this work. He started it, it was happening, some wolves got in, divisions got in, but the work is not over. The work has just been slowed down and is sort of lying fallow right now, like fallow ground in the United States. But God's heart has not changed, and his heart is still to have the gospel preached to all the nations... To have the gospel preached to every person to bring the world into his kingdom so as pastor ray has shared as we ask ourselves how do we resume this work of worldwide revival well it first begins with believing that god does intend to send this worldwide revival giving up those fatalistic views that the world's just going to sink farther into sin and then God's going to come rapture the elect. We've got to give up those beliefs and see that Jesus came to save. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't write off the great mass of humanity as unsavable and just waiting to be thrown in the fire. So God does want to send a worldwide revival, that's the very purpose for which Jesus came, was to send the Holy Spirit. He did come as an atonement for sins, but that's not the end of the gospel. That's the doorway into the gospel. Now, as we believe this, we can then pray with great confidence for our own personal Pentecost baptism in the Holy Spirit. We can pray with confidence for God to bring revival, to for God to bring Washington D.C. under his authority, for God's righteousness to be the rule in Washington D.C., and for sin to be the exception. Talk about a change that we're praying for.
3: And that begins with repentance, personal repentance, and turning from all known sin.
1: If such be the case. Now, the other aspect of it, as Pastor Ray has shared, is holiness. I know there are some of you listening who are saying, I'm not a sinner, and you're right. You have been born again. You are righteous in Jesus, but that's not the end of the gospel either. We are to go on to holiness, to having ourselves completely given to the work of God, to receiving the love of God in our hearts that destroys all fear, anger, superiority doubting, unbelief, to have this pure heart from God and to receive the Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit so that we can be fruitful in the work of Christ. When Jesus comes, he's going to take an account and he wants to see that at the very least, we put his money in the bank and got some interest on it. Now, praise God that he desires more than that, that we would bear a hundredfold. And that's what I've been praying ever since I became a Christian that I would be a hundredfold Christian for Jesus. So I pray today that this week has encouraged you to truly set your heart to go all the way with Jesus, to pray and believe for a worldwide revival, for your own personal Pentecost baptism in the Holy Spirit for purity and power, that God would live in you and walk in you and bring revival through you.
3: To your families.
1: Wherever he'll send you. In your
3: workplace, wherever he would send you.
1: It may be right where you're at, or he may have a totally different plan for your life. But first, you've got to get that baptism.
3: Well, we're almost out of time for this broadcast. I'd like to pray with you quickly before we close. Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, I love you. My heart is utterly given to you. I am consecrated, Lord Jesus, to serve you. And I pray for each who has listened to this broadcast that you will bring great conviction and great peace into the hearts of each who have chosen to walk holy before you. And I pray, Almighty God, for the baptism of your Holy Spirit upon our precious listeners. I pray you will break out in revival power in this city. Lord, have your way. Lord, I know no revival is going to take place until you begin to change the hearts of men and women and cause them to repent and leave their sin. Lord, would you come with great power? Would you change what's happening in Washington, D.C.? Would you turn this capital back to yourself and claim it as your own? Almighty God, break the deception in the hearts of men and women that came through Durism. Turn our hearts once more toward revival. And we will praise you and worship you. Jesus, come. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, you can be in touch with us by writing to us at
1: The National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, we're Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from The National Prayer Chapel. You can also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen to this message again and past messages, blog posts, There's all sorts of great stuff on the website and also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and on our YouTube channel at National Prayer Chapel.
3: You know, as we've done this study this week, I pray that your heart has been stirred and that you now will begin earnestly searching after Jesus for that baptism of the Holy Spirit. I know it's not possible for revival to come unless there is a conviction of sin in your heart and repentance and there must arise in your heart an intense desire to live in full obedience to our Lord Jesus it's giving up one's will to God in deep humility that's what we're called to If you'd like to pray with us, you're welcome to contact us. We know revival is coming. We're waiting on Jesus. And we're preparing our hearts for that work. God bless you today. We love you. We pray the richest blessing of the Holy Spirit for your life, the blood of Jesus. Talk to you soon
2: you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy